From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. New research links chronically dirty air with a greater risk of dying from the novel coronavirus. We now have evidence that the death rate increases by 15% for every one microgram per meter cubed of air pollution that people have been exposed to over the long term. You know, people may be much more sensitive to air pollution with disease than we previously understood. Also, how to find courage in the face of ecological grief. We're going to be facing some very hard things in the future, and I, I hope that we have a consciousness that can rise to this moment. That's the question I have. How do we strengthen one another? How do we find the courage to act? How do we support one another? How do we find the strength to not look away? That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood at a social distance. The novel coronavirus is more deadly in areas with many years of high air pollution, researchers are now saying. Biostatisticians at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health compared death rates from COVID-19 in 3,000 counties with air quality records and found that in areas with just a small increase in long-term rates of fine particle pollution, 15% more people are likely to be killed by the virus. And researchers at the University of Siena and Northern Italy also suggest there is an association between the region's long history of high air pollution and the high pandemic death rates. For some perspectives, we turn now to pediatrician Aaron Bernstein, who is the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard, though he did not work on the Harvard study. Since the particulates in air pollution seem to increase the lethality of the coronavirus, I asked Dr. Bernstein to start our conversation by explaining just what they are. Particulate matter air pollution refers to anything that's suspended in the air. So that could be from burning wood, it could be from gravel that's ground up on the ground and put into the air, or even dirt or salt that gets, you know, washed up from the shores into the air or off farms into the air. But it also can come from burning fossil fuels. And it's generally treated by its size. So we say there's particulate matter of 10 microns in diameter, particulate matter of two and a half microns on diameter. And the air rules for the United States, the air quality rules, tend to focus on so-called PM 2.5. That's about 120th the size of a human hair. So why are those particles such a health problem? Yeah. So lots of research has shown that the more particulate matter uh, people breathe, the more likely they are to die, particularly if you're older. We know that they cause heart attacks and strokes. We know that they cause lung cancer. There's now strong evidence that these particles can also promote the development of type 2 diabetes, mental health problems, affect the developing fetus, so uh, may see uh, poor growth and maybe early birth. And there's increasing evidence that they may be damaging brains, may be a cause of dementia, may be a cause of some disorders in children we see like autism. But the bottom line is, particulate matter is just generically really bad for us. (laughs) And in many places in the world, including the United States, the major sources from burning fossil fuels, in other places where people are using indoor cook stoves, for instance, and burning wood or dung or other things in their homes, that's a major source. And all told, particulate matter in the world is killing like somewhere between 7 and 10 million people every year, mostly in Asia, 
And it's, you know, in the top 10 causes of death, maybe in the top five by some estimates. And what are those numbers here in the United States? So there's probably on the order of 100,000 to 200,000 people who die every year from particulate matter in the United States. That death toll is not distributed evenly across the United States population. If you're poor, if you're African-American, if you're Latino, your odds of getting sick and dying from particulate matter are much higher than other folks. And, you know, we know that, of course, short of death, there are a lot of bad things that happen to people from air pollution. I, as a pediatrician, know that air pollution can be a major risk for everything from ear infections to pneumonias. And, you know, in people who are older, air pollution, particular matter air pollution, can cause heart attacks and strokes. And as a pediatrician, I imagine you see a fair amount of asthma. Yep. We also know that particulate matter is a major both cause, meaning it would take a child who wouldn't have had asthma and lead them to have asthma. But also, of course, children who already have asthma are more likely to have trouble breathing. And that's also true for adults. Adults who have chronic lung diseases uh, who get exposed to particulate matter are much more likely to have a hard time breathing. What's the relationship between particulates and, and climate disruption, climate change? Well, it's, you know, sort of the same problem. Around 70% of the carbon emissions in the world come from burning fossil fuels. And as I mentioned before, a huge amount of death is happening because of particulate matter air pollution that also come from burning fossil fuels. And so, you know, you, you get a win-win there. If you get off fossil fuels, you get rid of huge burdens of disease right now. I think that's critical, which is, you know, we don't wait for months or years when you stop burning coal in a power plant and convert it to renewables. The change in health happens right now, and particularly in the places where that coal plant stops burning coal. And of course, that means there's also less carbon emissions, which protects the climate moving forward. Now, explain to me why uh, air pollution then is apparently increasing uh, a COVID patient's uh, risk of dying from the disease, as some recent papers have indicated. Yeah, so had you asked me that question a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, well, we have lots of evidence from other even viral infections, including SARS, which is sort of the first cousin of COVID. It's also a coronavirus. It also came into people from bats. That particulate pollution, particulate matter air pollution, is a major reason for people to get sick and potentially die from these infections. But in the last week, we've had evidence now specifically on COVID in the United States showing that very small changes in the amount of air particles that people have been exposed to over the long term. So these are not the day-to-day -day fluctuations, but this is over many months. So if you've lived in a place with overall worse air pollution, the death rate increases by 15% for every one microgram per meter cubed of air pollution, particulate matter air pollution. Now, to put that in context... You know, in Boston, the air quality right now, the particulate matter levels are about five micrograms per meters cubed. You know, on a bad day, it gets up 15 to 20. Many places in the United States are 30. But one microgram per meter cubed difference over the long haul, right, this is over extended periods, leading to a 15% increase in the death rate from COVID. And that's, by the way, doing statistics to try and account for the health status of the people who are affected. So whether you are sicker at baseline or not, they also, in this study, looked at people's access to health care, so were there hospitals available to you or not. They looked at people's socioeconomic status, so whether you were rich or poor, and a host of other things that, of course, should matter to whether someone's likely to die. And even accounting for all those things, they still found 
that these small differences in air pollution matter to whether or not you're going to die from this disease. So we've seen, of course, just horrific death rates uh, so far in places like New York City, uh, northern New Jersey, seems to be question of what might be going on in Louisiana and in Michigan. In many of these places, it's been tied to ethnicity. It's been tied to the African-American community. It's been tied to the Hispanic community. What's going on there, do you think? So one of the you know guesses about what's going on there is that, for one thing, many minority communities in this country do not have equal access to health care at baseline, meaning if they have a little bit of heart disease, they might not have the same level of care as other folks. And so it's possible that some of this is, is reflective of barriers to care, inequality in access to care, and other social determinants of health that can drive whether or not people might live or die. But, you know, this new evidence, and frankly, in conjunction with the old evidence, is worrisome because we know that African Americans and Latino Americans are disproportionately exposed to air pollution. There have been many studies showing this. And so, you know, we now have the challenge to sort out whether, in fact, this signal that it's emerging, which is minority communities, particularly African-Americans, potentially Latinos, are at increased risk of dying because of air pollution in their communities. You know, if that turns out to be the case, it would be yet another kick in the pants around why, frankly, climate actions are so important. You know, I've been saying for the past several weeks that climate actions are pandemic prevention actions. And a lot of folks, I think, understandably get rankled by that. How can you be talking about climate change when people are dying of an infectious disease right now? And my answer to that is, is pretty easy, which is if someone's having a heart attack and they're getting their you know, heart reperfused with blood, you know, you're not talking about what they're eating and whether they're smoking and whether they're exercising when they're on the table getting <laughs> their blood vessel open. And that's probably because they're asleep, by the way. But the moment they're awake, there's someone in that room saying, you know, we've got to do better to prevent this. And what we know now about COVID, and this is true not just with the air pollution piece, but it has to also do with our diets. We know now that our health, the population health of people in this country is a huge factor in how we deal with something like COVID. So air pollution may matter, our diets may matter. So there was an op-ed published in the New York Times a week or so ago by colleagues of mine at Boston Children's saying, you know, we are not healthy enough to go back to work <laughs> because of our diets and the rates of obesity in this country and how we know that the rates of mortality from COVID are heavily dependent on pre-existing medical conditions, the lion's share of which are preventable through dietary changes. And we know, of course, that eating, for example, more plants, less red meat is enormously helpful for our health right now and also, of course, for the climate. What kind of impact on public health do you think the Trump administration's uh, decisions to indefinitely relax the enforcement of certain environmental regulations, including air pollution, what could this have right now in the midst of the coronavirus, do you think? Yeah, it's hard to know. It's a good question. A lot of people have been really concerned about the EPA's decision to essentially allow polluters to not really pay so much attention to their pollution. In light of the research that came out this week, I think there's heightened concern here because if even small increments in air pollution occur, especially in communities that we know are at risk, that decision now looks a little less wise. 
you know, I do my best to operate in good faith that the folks who are trying to steer us right now are doing the best job they can. But I think that what we, we, we owe it to everybody to do is to try and use science as best we can to make the case as to why certain decisions might be changed or why certain decisions should stand. And I think this is a very good example, which is we now have evidence people may be much more sensitive to air pollution with disease than we previously understood. Does that matter to the decision of the EPA? I would say it absolutely does. I should note that for the last three years, air pollution in the United States has gotten worse for the first time in decades. Not clear why that is, but you know this is concerning because from a regulatory standpoint, there's no reason for that to happen. So we already have this uptick in air pollution. Now we have evidence that air pollution may be more risky and we potentially have an EPA that's saying, let's not pay as much attention to air pollution. That would certainly give me pause, particularly for those folks in our communities that are most at risk. Ari, before you go, What advice do you have as a physician to people going through this COVID pandemic, ways beyond the usual things uh, we hear to enhance uh, our own health and that of of our children and our elders, people that we care about? Yeah, it's a great question, Steve. Let me try and answer it in, in the domain that's closest to my own, which is, you know, what do you tell children who've been kept out of school and kept away from friends and maybe hard to understand what's going on in some ways because all children sort of get infections. Many of them had ear infections, throat infections, and they're sort of, you know, they get over them. And this is just so wildly different. So for children out there uh, and, you know, for their parents and grownups who are are listening, you know, I think there's a couple of important things to know. One is that it's important to take care of ourselves right now. That doesn't mean binging on French fries. Uh, <laughs> what what it does mean is keeping with the routines as much as we can that that happened you know before we were asked to stay home and to the extent we can engage with our friends through computers and the internet to the extent that we can continue our schoolwork to the extent we can maintain those routines that's great i also think that you know the things that we're being asked to do washing our hands all the time keeping our physical distance from others are good for protecting ourselves and our families, but they're also, of course, done primarily to protect people most at risk, right? So most children are not affected as severely and they may not have symptoms. And so one might reasonably said, well, I'm not really protecting myself if I'm a child. (laughs) The real reason is we're protecting people who are more at risk. And, you know, there aren't a lot of silver linings in this mess, but one of them could be that we cultivate a cohort of children here who really get that we do things not always for ourselves. That sometimes the right thing to do, which may not be something that we would do for ourselves otherwise, is important to do because it saves lives. It keeps the people in our communities healthy, that we make decisions that matter beyond ourselves. And there's been no experience in recent memory that has made it clearer than this one, that our health is absolutely tied to the communities we live in and to the living world, and that we simply must move forward on that basis if we want to make sure that our children grow up to have the opportunities and health that so many of us have enjoyed. And so that's the kind of thing I think is is really important to talk to our children about these days. 
Aaron Bernstein is the interim director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital. Ari, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's time now to take a look beyond the headlines. And to do that, we talk to Peter Dykstra. Peter is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Georgia, Atlanta. Hey there, Peter. What's going on? Hi, Steve. I want to start talking about something that sounds like really bad news. It's not good news, but it's not as bad as we might think. Okay, not as bad as we might think. Go on. In the journal Nature, scientists have reported that there is an ozone hole over the Arctic. This is only the third time there's been an actual ozone hole since we started measuring. The other two are in 1997 and 2011. By the time this one is done, the scientists think it's going to be the biggest ever. So you're saying it's not such horrible news because why? Because since the Montreal Protocol, the Treaty on Ozone-Depleting Chemicals, came into effect in the 1980s, the ozone hole at the South Pole and ozone conditions at the North Pole have very gradually begun to repair themselves. And one of the reasons that we had this massive international agreement that resulted in environmental improvement is that it was supported by two conservative icons in world politics, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Well, conservatives can be conservationists as well. If they want to be. Hey, what else do you have for us this week, Peter? Well, on the EHN page, we have a story from Hillary Beaumont. It's about a pollution problem on the U.S.-Canadian border. The town of Sault Ste. Marie, half in Ontario, half across the river in Michigan. There's a big polluter on the Canadian side, Algoma Steel. There are plans to build what's called a ferrochrome plant to make chromium. On the American side, the waste from these plants has included hexavalent chromium. It's a toxic material that's a known cancer causer. And in this case, it's in an area where there is a cancer cluster. And the company says this plant will be cleaner than other hexavalent chromium sites in the past, but residents are concerned. Well, that uh, hexavalent chromium is the carcinogen at the center of the Aaron Brockovich movie, right? Well, you're absolutely right, but here's the thing. There aren't that many major Hollywood releases about the environment. And hexavalent chromium is actually at the center of two of them, Aaron Brockovich and also A Civil Action, a best-selling book that became a hit movie. That one is about a tannery site in Woburn, Massachusetts. There's also an old tannery site at the Sault Ste. Marie uh, Superfund area. And in the Canadian and Michigan location, there are astronomic cancer rates on both sides of the border, including those linked to the steel mill. So how do folks feel about this? Well, a lot of folks feel that they've been a sacrifice zone to industry already. There's a lot of mistrust about this new ferrochrome plant coming in. The plant promises to provide 300 jobs if it's built, 
It's an economically struggling region. A lot of residents are saying they already deal with pollution and cancer. So at what cost are those 300 jobs going to come? Excellent question to ask. All right, uh, Peter, now's the time that we turn to look back in history, and I'm wondering what you're looking at today. Yeah, here's something that I looked at, and it's really hard to believe this is 30 years ago already, but on April 12th, 1990, Starkist, the tuna company, subsidiary of Heinz Foods, announced that it would no longer buy and sell tuna that's caught by methods that also cause the deaths of thousands of dolphins in per se nets. Uh, yes, the birth of the dolphin-safe tuna. Yeah, and Starkist was a pioneer. The reason that they were a pioneer is that their executives were swayed by video shot by an activist named Sam Labuddy. He crewed aboard a tuna saner as a cook, basically another movie title, Sleeping with the Enemy almost, and he videotaped dozens of dolphin carcasses being hauled in with the tuna catch. It appalled people. It turned a corner for this major uh, tuna processor, and Sam Labuddy's courage won him the Goldman Environmental Prize in 1991. And really struck a blow uh, for using a clandestine video, but wouldn't you say this was literally at the risk of his own life? It was one of the most courageous individual acts of environmental activism in history, and it also taught a lesson about using video. All right. Thank you, Peter. Peter Dyster is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more about these stories on the Living on Earth website at loe.org. COVID-19 and the climate crisis cannot be separated. I'm Emily Adkin, founder of The Heated Newsletter on Substack. The Heated podcast is a six-episode, limited-run series. In this series, we connect the dots on how two of the most pressing issues of our time are really one and the same. I'll bring you up-to-the-minute interviews with climate experts like Mary Hegler, Anthony Rogers-Wright, Kate Aronoff, Aaron Bernstein, and Bill McKibben. Find us in the Drilled podcast feed, everywhere you get your podcasts. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. April is National Poetry Month, and for some inspiration during these times when we need to stay close to home, we turn now to outdoor educator and poet Susan Edwards Richmond. She teaches at a nature-based preschool west of Boston, and here she is with her poem, One Log Per Visit, Never the Same Log Twice. So when I'm out with my preschool classes at Drumlin Farm Wildlife Sanctuary, we often talk about guidelines for respectfully entering places where animals live. And there's this one nature play area where there's a lot of big logs arranged in a campfire circle. And in a previous class, we had talked about what might live under these logs, that there were habitats there. So the kids were very excited to start rolling log after log to see what might live underneath. So we sat down and we talked and we came up with some rules for ways to minimize our disturbance of the animals in their homes. One log per visit, never the same log twice. In the dark and damp, deep places beneath the surface of our play lurks a lesson in gratification deferred. Shadow creatures, blue as caves and midnight, or red as bloodworms, mudworms meander, spotted with toxicity. Some days, 
Only ants, a spider hiding a sack. Other days, millipedes curl or centipedes scurry or ubiquitous sow bugs crawl along bark and roots and offered arms. But the prize awe is the vertebrate who at first glance appears as wet and spineless as a slug, but on second unwinds in graceful curves, spreads tiny frog feet, and paddles the earth. Susan Edwards Richmond reading her poem, One Log Per Visit, Never the Same Log Twice. Susan is also the author of the children's book, Bird Count. On April 5th, BioBlitz brought together 300-plus participants at a social distance in 27 countries who took photos of plants and animals close to home and used the iNaturalist app to identify and log in those observations for scientists. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom took part along with her husband Mark and daughter Sage and Luna, aged 5 and 2. They got started at the kitchen window with a view of their bird feeders. Looking for birdies. What do we see? A woodpecker. How do you know it's a woodpecker? Because it pecks. I see another animal underneath the other bird feeder. What do you see, Luna? I think that's a squirrel. Well, let me get a picture of the squirrel so we can um, share it on the app. So cute. Now I'm going to hit the green share button. Okay, I loaded our picture of the squirrel, and it gives me a few suggestions for what kind of squirrel it could be. But what do you think? Which kind of squirrel do you think it looks like of these pictures here? Let's see. Put your phone on the window. Oh, you want to hold it closer? Okay. Now what do you think? Which one does it look like? That one. Eastern gray squirrel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Why do you think it looks like that one? Because it's in a yard. (laughs) Yeah, it's in a yard. And it looks just the same. Oh, look, look, look. What's that one? It's a red bird. What kind of red, what kind of birdie is that? Cardinal. Is it a boy? Yeah, I think it is a boy. Why do you think it's a boy, Sagey? Because it's much more prettier. The boys are much prettier. Are they brighter red? We have a bunch of species here. I think there's a chickadee up there. There's several. There's some type of thrush down there. We're not getting pictures of them. It's happening too fast. I'll go outside and look for more animals. Okay, that's a great idea. Yay, let's go. All right, let's go get our boots on. I need help in and get down. Luna, come on. I got my boots. Oh, you're all set. We should start in our backyard. Okay, let's start in our backyard. That's a great idea. What are they having for treats today? They're having peanut butter and bugs. Peanut butter and bugs? Yeah. All right, well, these count. Let's take a picture. What should we do next, honey? Follow me. Keep your eyes open, Luna. 
Luna, what do you see? A robin. You see a robin? Luna, do you want to look under a log? Yeah. Let's do it. Come on. I will hold it. What is I don't know that? If you want to hold that? That might bite, actually. No, I remember it doesn't bite. Here's a worm for you, Luna. A worm. It's so cool. Luna, worms are good for our garden because they make more soil. Let's grow the log back and give the wormies their home. There's another log over there. I want to turn it. <gasps> a worm. Oh, oh. Oh, hold it. Nope, there's a creepy crawly right there. I okay. don't Creepy crawly? Creepy crawly? I want it's very creepy, creepy crawly. I don't even want to be holding it myself. Creepy crawly. Creepy. Excuse me. Creep. Creep. I love you. Bird. Do you guys hear that? You tickle too much. Is it tickling your hand? Look, girls, what's that in the tree? You see that blue bird there in the tree? It just flew down to a bush. Jay calling, actually. You can hear it calling. And there's a cardinal in the tree, too. All right, what should we do now, Sajie? Yeah, I'm done. Let's go inside and get a treat. Get a treat? Yeah! Was this fun? Yeah. It was Finding the mama chicken the treats. All right, well, let's head back in. That's Living Honors Bobby Bascom and her family, Mark, Sage, and Luna, who submitted 17 entries for the BioBlitz. For pictures of some of the creepy crawlies they found, visit the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. Coming up, how one can still gain while losing. Author Terry Tempest-Williams is next on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In these times, it may seem the whole world is eroding before our eyes, but grappling with profound loss, uncertainty, and change is nothing new for writer Terry Tempest-Williams. Her 1991 memoir, Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family in Place, set her searing exploration of grief and courage in the arms of nature. Now, almost 30 years later, Terry has written Erosion, Essays of Undoing, that mourn the erasure of public lands as well as personal losses. As a writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School, Terry Tempest-Williams divides her time between Cambridge, Massachusetts and Castle Valley, Utah, nearly a mile above sea level on the Colorado Plateau. She joined us at a Good Reads on Earth live event in Cambridge, thankfully before physical distancing made such gatherings impossible. So let's start at, uh, at Castle Valley, Utah, a place that is so essential 
to this book. Paint a picture for us, would you, of, of how it's been shaped by the forces of erosion over these millions of years. Steve, if you and I were having this conversation on our porch, facing south, you would see Round Mountain, which is a volcanic plug. It looks like a breast. If you were to see beyond Round Mountain, you would see the LaSalle's rising almost 14,000 feet. To the west is Porcupine Rim. To the north is the Colorado River running red. And to the east with the rising sun is Castleton Tower and a red rock sandstone formation called the Priest and Nuns created out of erosion. It is a still place. My measure of quiet is to be able to hear the wing beats of ravens, which we do. And in the spring, certainly the, the songs of the meadowlarks and at night, coyotes. So it's a wild place. It's also a domesticated place. It's a community of about 250 people, as diverse as you can imagine, but we are known in Moab, Utah, about an hour from us as the People's Republic of Castle Valley. <laughs> and so it's an unpredictable place. <laughs> so the Red Rocks are so seductive, aren't they? It's just amazing. The pictures, though, are tough on radio, but I understand you brought some sound for us, right? It's a sound of the earth uh, that you can share with us straight from the desert. Please tell us about what we're about to hear now. Last fall, Jeff Moore, a geologist from the University of Utah with four graduate students, they've been doing work looking at the porosity of these landforms, buttes, mesas, in particular arches, hoodoos in the Valley of Gods, and spires. What is their lifespan? What is the process of erosion? How strong are they? They came to Castle Valley. They brought their seismometers. It would be like a stethoscope. They enlisted two climbers, and they put one seismometer at the base of Castleton Tower. Imagine that it is a 400-foot Wingate sandstone monolith, one of the largest freestanding spires in the world. The climbers went up that 400 feet, placed a second seismometer on top, and Jeff Moore and his graduate students listened. What they heard surprised them. Castleton Tower has a pulse. And it amplifies the energy that flows through them. It can be local, helicopter, traffic, climbers, wind, it can be planetary. The waves of magma, the mm. waves of the Pacific Ocean, mm. earthquake. So with their permission, I brought a recording and see if you can hear the pulse. It's a vibration, it's a resonance, but as you listen, it mirrors our own heartbeat. Castleton Tower has a pulse. We have a pulse. The earth has a pulse. We took that to Jonah Yellowman, who is the spiritual advisor for the Bears Ears Coalition with Utah Dene Bekea, Steve. And I'll never forget him holding that to his ear and just nodding for three or four minutes. And then he said, this is what we know. And I think about Western science, geologists, what scientists know and what native people know 
and that we're at this point where those knowledges, those wisdoms, the facts, and the feelings are merging together in a common language. And I think if we could realize that Castleton Tower has a pulse, Bears Ears have a pulse, the ocean, the Atlantic right here, just outside Cambridge, has a pulse, would we treat the earth differently? Would we see ourselves in relationship to the natural world differently? I understand you have a passage from your new book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing, that you'd like to read, Terry. Please set this up a bit for us. It comes from the very end, I think. You know, what is erosion? It's a natural process. Um, a scientific definition would be the surface of the earth worn down and moved from one place to another through the force of gravity. And I think movement is the key with erosion. It's different than just weathering in place of wind, water, and time. I have to say, I met a geologist named Joanne Holloway, who works for the USGS, the United States Geological Survey, and she came up with her own definition, which is the inevitable process by which rock seeks the ocean. Don't you love that? And then a literary definition, all souls come here to rub the sharp edges off each other. This isn't suffering. It is erosion. Chuck Palahniuk of Fight Club. So this is the end of the book, actually. Early in our evolution, we discovered as homo sapiens, through need and necessity, that our imaginations can summon power. Fire became a dream ignited that enabled us to feed ourselves and gather round to share stories. Stories are power. Power resides in community. When power is denied and oppresses others, we can resist. And when we resist together, something else can occur. Something new emerges. This is the essence of erosion and evolution in human time. In geologic time, transformation can be slow and corrosive, or catastrophic and quick. It may be a cataclysmic moment, or it may happen incrementally over time. Deep change requires both, and it is not without its ruptures. It can be associated with devastation or determination. It can also be beautiful. Weathering agents are among us. This is a time of exposure. I dwell in Utah. I am witnessing change. Wind does wear down stone. I think it's that idea, Steve, that we are both evolving and eroding together. Wind does wear down stone. We can resist. We can insist change together. Now, central piece of your theme of erosion in this book is the shrinking of national monuments that the Trump administration undertook at Bears Ears. Now, granted, President Obama waited to the last second in his administration, really, to set aside Bears Ears. But when President Trump came in, the Bears Ears designation shrunk by 85% of its original area. Why did these dramatic changes to these designations affect you so, so deeply? And paint a picture in our minds of what we would see if we were there. And, of course, the iconic piece that everyone calls Bears Ears. Bears Ears are two buttes, and they 
look like bears ears. They're covered with pinions. They are in the middle of what we refer to as Grand Gulch. It's just outside of Blanding, Utah, very near the Four Corners region, where Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona share a common boundary point. They can also be seen from Monument Valley. They're powerful. I've known them as a child, but I didn't know their history until really relatively recently. The Diné, Navajo, Hopi, Zuni, Ute Mountain Ute, Oray Ute, many of the Pueblo people, these are sacred lands. Bears Ears is a gathering place for many, many nations. And as Jonah Yellowman would say, they're not just protecting Bears Ears for their people, but for all people. President Obama heard their cries, as did Secretary Jewell. It was a handshake across history. It was new trust. And it was this commitment that traditional knowledge would be married with Western science in protecting these very fragile desert lands. Trump came in and gutted it by 85%. And now it's open for business. Uranium mining, oil and gas leases, coal. And Bears Ears isn't the only one affected. And I want to read you the list. Chaco Canyon, Hovenweep, Mesa Verde, Theodore Roosevelt National Park, Canyonlands National Park, Great Sand Dunes, Rocky Mountain National Park, Big Cypress, Grand Teton National Park, Carlsbad Cavern, Dinosaur National Monument, Sequoia National Park. All of these national parks and monuments are being affected by oil and gas leasing in the parks and outside the parks. This is 25% of the greenhouse emissions are excavated out of our public lands. If we were to halt oil and gas leases on our public lands that belong to all of us, and we have to keep in mind before they were public lands, they were native lands, we would stop 450 million tons of climate pollution. You point out that there's all this carbon gets spewed into the atmosphere from the excavation and drilling and extraction from public lands. And uh, tell me about back in 2016 when you and your husband, Brooke, decided to take oh, a unique stand against the erosion of public lands and the leasing of public lands for oil and gas development by purchasing the leasing rights to, what, more than 1,100 acres near your home there in Utah to be developed by the Tempest Exploration Company, LLC. Not for fossil fuels, but apparently for the energy that will fuel the moral imagination you wrote. What inspired you to do this? Rage. I think anger goes a long way. And with a name like Tempest, um, I have to <laughs> be careful. You know, we belong to a community. Eight years prior, a young man, college student at the University of Utah named Tim DeChristopher, was part of a protest with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, protesting again oil and gas leases on fragile desert lands in the Colorado Plateau. It was snowing. He went inside. The lease was going on. He walked in. Someone said, are you here to bid? And he said, why, yes. Saw these lands that he knew by name and bid them up to fair market value. He was an economic student as an act of civil disobedience. He served two years in prison for that. Eight years later, Brooke and I were part of a protest 
with our students at the University of Utah in the Environmental Humanities Program, sponsored by many groups in Salt Lake City. We went in to protest. Being an introvert, I went into the shortest line. It ended up not going where the protesters were, but where the oil and gas lease was being held. I found myself sitting next to the CEOs of major oil companies. The protesters uh, disrupted the lease. They were asked to leave. They stayed. They protested again, interrupted, disrupted, and they were asked to leave, and they were forced out by the police. I stayed inside. I listened and watched the vile language, the misogyny, the racist language. I was appalled. I, too, knew these lands by name in our very county, Grand County in Utah. I also knew that if we waited until after the auction, that we could go to the Bureau of Land Management and purchase them on a remnant sale. We went in for the remnant sale, got out the map, saw the key parcels in terms of endangered species and in terms of um, wilderness value, and we purchased, as you said, 1,120 acres on our debit card, um, <laughs> hoping to heaven that we had enough to cover it. And it was $1.50 an acre. It, that, these are our public lands. That's cheaper than a cup of coffee, certainly here in Cambridge. And we immediately formed the Tempest Energy Company, LLC, the BLM, because we said we would not develop these leases until uh, science could prove to us that the oil and gas was worth more above ground than below, they took that as an offense, even though many of those men, and they were men that I was sitting next to, had no uh, intention of developing those leases until the price of oil went up. Um, nine months later, they revoked our leases. Through the Freedom of Information Act, we learned that no leases have been revoked since the 1920 Minerals Leasing Act, but ours. Um, we've appealed the decision. It's now before the Board of Land Appeals in the Department of Interior. It's now going on four years, and we're about to put some pressure on with a very friendly administration right now, as you know. So you repeat over and over again as a mantra, really, as a prayer, the phrase that we are eroding and evolving it all at once throughout this book, we are eroding and evolving. Why does that feel so vital to have a mantra like that? Hope is not a word in my vocabulary, I have to tell you. Um, faith is. I remember my great-grandmother, uh, Mormon, born in Mexico, said, faith without works is dead. But in the middle of, of this erosion of democracy, of decency, of science, um, all the things that you and I care about, I think back to home, Castleton Tower, the Priest and Nuns, Round Mountain, Porcupine Rim, the Colorado River, Monument Valley, Grand Canyon, Bears Ears. There is beauty in erosion, and that has been evolving over time. So I think it takes us to our essence. It may take us to our knees. Our consciousness is evolving. And I think it's not so much about hope as knowing where hope dwells. And I think, for me, hope dwells in community. I don't know about you, but there are moments where I wake up and I think, I don't know if I can get up today. You know, despair is very real. But that is the limits of my own imagination. Imaginations shared create collaboration, 
in collaboration, we create community, and in community, anything is possible. So, Terry Tempest-Williams, we've been asking you a lot of questions tonight, but since you uh, wrote in the preface of, of this book uh, that it is a book of questions, as I recall, I'd like to ask you, what is your question, if you could pick one for this moment? How do we find the strength to face our grief? How do we find the strength to bear our broken hearts? Whether it's with what we're facing with a loss of species, with what we're facing with rising tides, we're going to be facing some very hard things in the future. And I, I hope that we have a consciousness that can rise to this moment. That's the question I have. How do we strengthen one another? How do we find the courage to act? How do we support one another? How do we find the strength to not look away, to stay steady? And here's, here's a story. One of the things that Jeff Moore said, Jeff Moore's the geologist that found the pulse with his graduate students, five of them. They came to our house for a cup of tea. And as we sat there, he said, Terry, there's something I want to ask you. We have found a piece of information and we don't know what to do with it. We do not have the language to articulate this to where we don't sound soft-headed. Here's what they found, if I understand it. Castleton Tower has gone through millions of years of fractures, shearing, ice, wind, water. There was another tower next to it. It is gone. It has just been whittled and whittled and whittled into this perfect point. What they have found through algorithms and through their resonance studies is that it has now achieved a steady state of stability. I mean, as a writer, metaphorically, that is so exquisite. So if we are in this process of eroding, can we too find this steady state of stability, calm, consciousness? Terry Tempest Williams is the author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing, Refuge, and numerous other books. And she's currently a writer in residence at the Harvard Divinity School. Terry, thank you so much for taking this time. Thank you, Steve. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Merlin Hajiomeri, Candace C. Wing G, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. 
Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy.